everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Skeptically Inclined Science Podcast. We're on episode 42. Hope you're doing well. I'm Evan. And I'm Tom. And and welcome wherever you're listening from. It's been a while since we recorded. I think um, last episode we had we had the lovely Dr. Anthony Cave, who was on, um, who talked about his profession of anesthesiology. So if you haven't checked it out, we definitely recommend it. Um, you can find it um, in the previous episode. So yeah. Um, yeah, today, Tom, what are you going to cover for the episode? Uh, and nutrition science, something that, uh, that um, I was inspired to do after our episode 36, when we talked with Carol Rollo. Relu? Oh, yeah. Relo? Relu? Relo. Carol LaRue. So I will be talking about nutrition science, which I was inspired to after episode 36 with uh, Carol and after episode 41 with Anthony. I felt like nutrition science is something that is close within the sphere that these two guys operate. Uh, Carol being like the expert on weight loss and um and anthony being you know just looking into like this alternative medicine integrative medicine thing so and nutrition plays plays an important role uh, in both but uh, i always i was always reluctant <laughs> to look into nutrition science because i always seen it as hard to interpret it mm. and uh, i decided well let's look why is it hard to uh, hard to interpret it, these results and we're just gonna cover a little bit of like pitfalls of nutrition science and what can be done better for a future yeah. yeah sounds interesting i always think like it's such a hard one to report about because it's like there's always new stuff coming out and it's always like this is was this food is good for you i know actually this food is bad for you and then it's like a week later it's the reverse so it's like yeah that's the one i'm always like how do you even know what to where to go like it's very confusing so yeah i think it'd be interesting um discussion and uh, yeah. I'm just going to cover the, some of the headlines that has happened recently. Uh, just mainly, I was looking at a, a long COVID paper and just a briefly about the monkeypox. Um, that's the new virus that's <laughs> taking over the world, it seems like. Are we supposed to be scared? Um, well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't think so, but I don't think it'll be as bad as COVID anyways. But yeah, we'll... We'll look into it anyways. I, I, I think you have covered this previously in an ep in an episode before it went uh, massive. Uh, you talked <coughs> briefly about a case, so I'm not going to go into. You had already sure. explained what it is, so I just wanted to talk briefly about this new. Um, mm -hmm. It's not an epidemic, but new cases that are appearing worldwide. Outbreak. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Before we go into them, anyways, I just yeah, as we do. How are you getting on? Are you doing well? uh grand yeah i'm uh coming into summer out. your uh summer months now wasn't it oh yeah science so, hot science but science summer <laughs> hot side summer <laughs> hot boy summer I, well i tell you one thing uh i had a meeting there on friday and i was showing my western blood to my supervisors right yeah and it was online and literally i had to like take off my headphones for a second because they were laughing so hard uh at my western blood because it was one of the most disgusting things <laughs> i ever saw in my life why that was so bad just the bands were all over the place and it Didn't just it mix. looked it looked like more it looked more like a a piece of contemporary or modern art <laughs> rather than the western blood yeah so we had a bit of a laugh 
it was suggested that I should use it as my cover for my thesis book. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You like, is uh, it art? Is it science? Who yeah, knows? I, it's, I suppose it fits narrative, like something. <laughs> it's, it fits narrative for my PhD, like, you know, some uh, yeah, things yeah. work and some things don't yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. Um, a, so that was fun. That's interesting. Speaking um, of actually pictures, because we were talking, me and we, we were show, talking about the this new DALI. Um, it's this new AI generated um, uh, mechanism you can mm -hmm. use and literally you can put in um, if anyone hasn't checked it you can look it up DALI D-A-L-I uh, AI generated uh, images and you can put in prompts about anything and it will show give you research results of images with these prompts so I think one of the things we had done recently was like Michael D. Higgins in love island so <laughs> you could see uh images it's not perfect the face is very um blurry and stuff like that but it's really crazy how it can actually generate these images just based on a few prompts do you think the the blurriness of the faces is on purpose so no, that people won't I think be it's making just the, excellent it's just a limitation like i think there's a new dolly too and then there's like a google one and they have a perfect like it can generate faces Perfectly. That's dangerous, lad. Well, like that's, dangerous. that's why they don't have Dolly Two available to the public because um, I think people would be end up like abusing it. They abusing can put you it. anywhere. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, I don't know how it will work with like normal people, but like it could easily with celebrities. Oh yeah. Put like and, and some compromising places yeah, and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, it's, we're it's dangerous. To, we're definitely coming into an age where you're like no have to question yeah. every image you see so yeah yeah interesting just end, yeah you're gonna have to end you end up with like a specific barcode for yourself so when people talk to you they know it's you in the future yeah 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 um and what was it i you, you were saying as well you hosted um an event a moderated an event yes. as well we are moderating an event here at radbout uh, especially in the department of human genetics we watched a documentary called picture a scientist which is about women in science at different stages of their career. They were telling stories of how they have experienced harassment uh, and assault um, on different occasions throughout their career. And it was very eye-opening. We discussed whether things like that happen in our department and luckily they don't because that would be really, really bad. But there is always room to be um, um, more aware of your own biases and you know work on the inclusivity and just basically trying to make the working environment suitable for everyone so you can reach a hundred percent of your potential. capabilities yeah potential yeah, yeah. Interesting. i think I, it was an i think it was a needed and uh and say, well uh, when you went into event. it as well did you think oh this isn't true like what are they on about and then did it open your eyes well, because I couldn't relate to any cases of the harassment or assault, I for, for a while I just couldn't believe that things like that happened, yeah. that they were telling about, saying about. But, you know, some of these things have, some of the cases that they were describing have been well documented. So it's not, so it wasn't like only brought up to the surface for the purpose of the documentary. Yeah. It has like some serious things have happened like in the University of Boston and and you know the the different schools management of these different science scientific schools was involved so these things have been documented so they did really happen not that we ever questioned those but just in someone someone wonders but they were quite eye-opening 
it's a yeah it's a very delicate spheres zone to operate in mm. and yeah so you de- it ch- yeah. check out this, the documentary anyways yeah check out the documentary it's on netflix uh you can you can watch it for free yeah it's called picture scientist even uh, <clears throat> if you don't see yourself as a massive activist or anything like that it's nice to watch it just to be aware of these things are happening mm. and this is not only in relation to science or you know career path linked with science it's, it's most mostly to do with this kind of a student teacher relationship that perhaps is really uh, emphasized in science where you work on a daily basis with your supervisors and you have this kind of a level up level down kind of relationship mm-hmm. and potentially these are the these are the places where these kind of abuse of power can take place mm, yeah. okay because of you talking about so uh sexism in the lab mm-hmm. and so I seen this news article in Nature. It's called "The Sting of Sizeism in the Scientific Workplace," and saying researchers of size say weight bias is harming their careers and well-being, and workplace changes can reduce the stigma. So, what do you think of this? Sorry, can you come again? Because I didn't get that at all. <laughs> caught, I caught you off guard. The sting of sizeism in the scientific workplace. What does this mean? Researchers of size say weight bias is harming their careers and well-being. So basically how this woman, she said she couldn't find a lab coat. She felt she was being excluded because she was, um, they only stocked size up to XL. And she said she needed a 3XL and that she couldn't start her work without the lab coat. So she was being excluded, she felt. Um, and she reckoned they just reckon that stigma there's a stigma about fatness that people judge are judging you uh, I'm sorry no <laughs> stop no. No, no 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 there's no like there's twitter hashtags for queer in STEM and black in STEM but you never see what do you have to bring, in bring that into and fat in academy hashtag fat in academia that's not a thing <laughs> no no that's not a thing wow <laughs> It simply is not like yeah, yeah. Because look, there is not a lab in the world that keeps on. So in our lab, yeah, you have a general stock. You have general lab codes. Well, not anymore, but now we have personalized lab codes. But there is not just that many XXL people walking around that you have to have them on standby. Yeah. So you just, it's, a, it's the, a non-problem. This is non-problem. Yeah. They reckon that people are discriminated if they're overweight, that they're more like overlooked for jobs, um, for promotions um, because of that, I suppose. I don't know. But like how? You just don't want to work with fat person, is it? Well, they think that they're more likely to uh, choose um, people who are less, who aren't overweight. Um but is there? Do they think that there is there any disadvantage to being fat, or do do they think that they're not being selected selected because they're fat? Well, it says here people who are overweight are often viewed as lacking willpower and less employable. Um, as a result, they are less likely than slimmer people to be called back for an interview to be offered a career. I mean, some jobs are are linked with physical fitness, you know. So I don't see, I can't see how obese person, like or morbidly obese person, is going to be a personal trainer. <laughs> trying to motivate someone in the gym it just, just doesn't adapt right so and there was another sort of guy let me let me let me see what you think of this tweet i think this okay. is a bit bad like he said 
uh, a psychologist at the University of New Mexico, his name was Jeffrey Miller. He tweeted that if obese people didn't have the willpower to give up carbohydrates, that they would never have the willpower to finish their PhD dissertation. <laughs> That's stupid because I've gained so many kilos over my PhD. So it's completely unfair. It's completely unfair to say that. Yeah, I mean, it's. I don't know. Maybe it's because I don't really pay attention to things like that. So I don't mm -hmm. see this as a problem. And because maybe I've never experienced yeah. being excluded maybe from something based yeah. on the size. But I just think yeah. this whole, I don't know, I don't know it, it, to me, it's kind of like when you don't want to talk about it because you don't want to hurt people's feelings. Like I do ag agree. Like I don't want to shame people. Like that's not good. But like you need to address the issue. Like you can't hide it. And I think this But hold whole, on. What do you mean you have to address the uh, issue? I just think like um being able to discuss um <laughs> but like out of nowhere like some fat person no, comes into no, the lab no, and you're like no. straight you have to be <laughs> on a diet like what do you mean able I don't to discuss know. why I, do you even want to talk about it I, yeah that's true why why do you i don't know i just think there is a huge obesity I, this is going to go into your story with the nutrition in anyways but i'm just saying there's a huge obesity problem in the world right now and i think we're acting like uh, there isn't an issue like with being overweight and obese. And I'm like, we need to be able to put in some kind of plan that if people want to lose weight or are willing to want to help with it, that the, it's easier to go to someone about it. I think a lot of people just don't want to, like when they go to their GP, they can't get treated for obesity. Like we should be viewing it as that instead of being like just ignoring the issue and just saying, it's fine, just be happy with your body, which I do think is good. But like overall, you're going to be unhealthy. It's going to lead to worse health outcomes. Uh, I don't know how you do that, but I don't, I just think, yeah, it just got me thinking. I just, I just don't know. I don't know, Evan, I just don't care that much. Um, I don't feel, no, it's not like I don't care. I just don't feel the need to like correct someone. I just, I, just let I them live their life. Yeah. I'm not going to be talking to anyone about their weight yeah. until, unless they're going to start the conversation. I'm not going to be like pointing it out. <clears throat> you are what you are and you look what you look. And it's at the end of the day, for, it has to come from you, the, the willingness to, you don't have, it's not like, it's not, I'm not saying that you have to have the will to change from, from zero to the finish. Okay. But I'm saying like it, the first step has to come from you. Like you yeah. have to be willing to take that first step and then there'll be different things and people that will assist you to get you through this journey if you want to get on that journey. But mm -hmm. I'm not going to be the person that's going to be walking around Nijmeh and trying to save all the fat people and yeah, telling them yeah. they have to go it's on a diet. Your, um... That's like live and let other people live as well. Maybe, maybe they fine. Maybe they don't yeah. care. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. I just was interested because yeah. you did this this moderation, and I was like, "What do you think?" But I do, I do think that it's, it's problem not. of females, um, minorities, uh, LGBTQTA plus people, ethnic minorities. That's a real. That's a bigger problem. problem. <laughs> I think being excluded on on the basis of size and weight. Is I'm not, not going to say that it doesn't happen. But probably, it, I just don't see this as a as a problem per se, yeah. as an origin problem or something that, yeah, 
kind of sounds to me like a bit of an excuse. <laughs> Look, it's a, it's maybe something just to have a discussion, have it like let 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 people think about it, see what they want to say. Um, but it's just it's a I I don't I don't want to shame, and I don't think obesity is not black and white. Um, and no one should be judged on it, but yeah, uh, it's just. But it's, how again, do you really? Like, I've never been whole sizeism. Is that a is that a real thing? Can you really classify it as a real thing? Um, yeah, <laughs> maybe we'll it's leave gonna... it at we we'll leave it at that. Right, moving on to moving on. Um, my news headlines um, quickly. So um, I was mentioned I want to talk about long COVID. So it's been estimated now that around two million people. Or this is in the UK, actually. Sorry. So it has been, so in the UK, it has been estimated that around two million people, or three percent of the population, are estimated to be experiencing long COVID symptoms. This figure was based on self-reported symptoms and not uh, a clinical diagnosis. Um, from an analysis of three hundred thousand responses to a COVID nineteen infection survey collected over a four week period ending the first of May. Um, just to let know, people know, long COVID, it's a, defined as an illness that persists for weeks or months after SARS-CoV-2 infection. And it can be related to your infection or it could be uh, something new symptoms, which can happen. It has been unclear whether it is less likely that you will develop long COVID after a breakthrough infection, i.e. one when you're vaccinated. So, um Participants were asked if they were still experiencing symptoms that are not explained by something else more than four weeks after first having COVID-19. Long COVID symptoms affected the day-to-day activities of 1.4 million people um, of those who had self-reported long COVID, with 20% reporting that their ability to go out about about day-to-day activities had been limited a lot. Uh, Fatigue was the most common symptom reported. 55% 55% of those reported who reported long COVID had fatigue, followed by shortness of breath, a cough, and muscle ache. And of the two, of the two million, 1.4 had COVID-19 at least tw- 12 weeks previously. Um, nearly just over 800,000 had it at least one year previously, and then 3,750,000, 375,000 said they had it at least two years previously. So there's like nearly a huge amount of pub. Uh, other population it seems that's have from the initial infection still have symptoms two years later which is mental um and Do like you know? 1.4 million that's so such a large like yeah. number that still have these symptoms like even though they had only covid like 12 weeks ago so um i just think it's something that's like i don't know are we not talking about it enough like are we doing giving these people enough help um, and the other thing was of people with self-reported long COVID, 30% first had COVID-19 before alpha became the dominant, but compared with 12% in the alpha, 21 in the delta, and then 31 in the Omicron. I think obviously the Omicron is a more common because that was the most recent, but 30% still got it from the, uh, the very first strain. Alpha. <clears throat> uh, no, it was, I don't know. It was the, the alpha was the first, uh, variant. So I don't know what okay. the original strain was. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I thought that was. I think that's crazy that um, it's such a huge amount of the population, and and like, COVID hasn't gone away either. So 
this is still something that we don't understand. It's still happening to a lot of people and it could still potentially happen to a lot of people. And I just was like, wow, it's not something really discussed. Are we giving these people help? We don't understand what's going on. One thing one thing that I think is that COVID has, uh, has had his media run. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and basically the media has to move on. So one thing could be just because we are not hearing about news on the news about it anymore, it doesn't mean that the work has stopped, you yeah. know? So I, 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 I certainly like to believe that people who are suffering from long COVID are on some sort of um, medical care, supportive care to get them, get them through this. And there is a, and there is a, there's an enormous body of work being done in the research sphere, trying to, uh, trying to figure out this infections, but yeah, it's just, uh, it's alarmingly large number, right? Yeah, of these yeah. people who suffer from the long, long COVID. COVID. Yeah, and a lot of them still had it from two years ago. And it's like, these people can't work. They're stuck at home uh, and we don't know why. And I've seen another interesting story where it was like that vaccination against COVID-19, it cuts the risk of long COVID for people who get infected by about 15% according to a study in the largest cohort yet used to ex examine how well vaccines protect against the condition. So it's not a huge amount of people that it does stop. Um, yeah, so, and this was carried out in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, yeah, and so, is that, mm -hmm, go on. Yeah, so they, and it's just like, yeah, the researchers, they did this in, looked at records from about 34,000 vaccinated people who had breakthrough SARS-CoV-2, COVID-2, infection uh, and 113,000 people have been infected but but not vaccinated and more than 13 million who hadn't been infected and they found that yeah as I said the vaccination seemed to reduce the likelihood of long COVID but only by 15% and previous studies had found much higher protection rates but this was like a really large cohort so it was kind of useful um, and they, yeah they're just saying like the limited protection means that withdrawing measures such as mass mandates might be putting people at more risk so yeah it, it's so like what to, what to do with this now because <laughs> it is happening it's in the population yeah i i don't know these people it's, cannot it's, work i do some think, of them i do think um tr trying to help them what their symptoms i think that's the most important thing but like there's such huge numbers like and you need to tailor a lot but of that's palpative care is there anything you can do to, to eliminate yeah um, or even to eliminate it like or is it just unless, all you, can symptoms come, unless you can come up with it well they are trying to develop vaccines now that's will stop you spreading it um i think now the vaccines are much more uh designed to stop you getting bad symptoms but then that's still not gonna that's still increasing your chances of getting long covid so if they can maybe design more vaccines that would have helped prevent it spread maybe then when it lowers the rates in the community i think that's the means to be the best way of doing it so so now they're thinking about vaccines that will that would limit the spread yeah. of COVID, and therefore that would limit the long COVID. yeah because mm -hmm. you weren't gonna catch it yeah that's what but what about the people who already have it is there anything for them yeah. to, to stop being sick <laughs> like it's i don't like there's no one fits all method yeah. i think everyone just has to be and do they all assessed. get the same symptoms of long covid or is it no, also varies? it's so varied but like fatigue and shortness of breath brain fog muscle ache cough i think they're like huge symptoms and it's just like it's such a it's such a sad one like 
so many people that have this and like there's not really much you can do about it people don't know and it's just it's really i really feel sorry for these people i don't and i did they do feel like they've been overlooked by the healthcare systems and uh, i'm not saying like we should i don't like i have a list of things we should be doing and just saying it's it's, it's but i don't know pity. how do you mean they being overlooked i just don't know if if uh enough has been giving given to help treat them to to, to come up with plans to i don't know if people to actually take it serious this long COVID, they might not um just think oh it's not that big of a deal it's just a bit of shortness it's just a bit of fatigue it's like i don't know how that's what i'm just wondering yeah. um, no I, i don't do you know anyone with long COVID? i don't actually know but no need, neither um, do I. yeah they reckon uh it's more likely to happen in women and if you're over i think 35 to 60 was the more likely to happen uh, i wonder is it so. So, i wonder if the virus is still there leading the causing the mm, symptoms or is it so. or is it just immune system being it's hyperactive the immune system is obviously um so they're not infectious i think it's they a, have symptoms it's some kind of autoimmune thing i would think you think so that the uh, yeah. immune system got a signal and it, mm. it changed some uh, changed some signaling and became out out to you well like that's immune. the only thing i would make yeah. sense to me like i think they're saying it's an it's an interesting one of like how many diseases right now were caused by like a symptomless virus that then led to these symptoms like could this covid-19 just be like the tip of an iceberg of with long covid of like how many diseases or symptoms that come on were actually a virus that you never really knew or thought much about so i think these post viral clearly... symptoms is a very big area that will have to be interested investigated and uh, looked into and it's, it's it's neurological is it it's it's like the things the symptoms you listed it's all kind of um like the muscle well, shortness of breath isn't really oh, that's my, long yeah. Uh, yeah. tiredness yeah i suppose it is neurological um, brain fog is neurological brain fog yeah yeah um but yeah so yeah but the shortness of breath <laughs> yeah How do, i don't know what why would it be it's because it's it affects everything mm. and it's so variable how do you even test for it do you have any biomarkers that you can look into that that's it like they don't they said like they've done people can come in with long covid into these clinics and like they do all the testing and they're coming out fine their bloods are fine their their images are fine and they're still like but there's something can't walk up the stairs without losing the out of breath like can't get out of bed or need completely go to sleep how many times a day like so or how many yeah, hours if, you, if so. you don't have a biomarker you can't yeah you don't know what's happening mm, yeah, you that's can't it. Like, track they, that's, it that's, that's you, it like there's no that's, that's why i'm that's another thing is like I think it must be very frustrating for them because there's not like one thing where like okay now I can I know I have long covid like it's all just because okay we we you have these lists of symptoms that we think it is um so that's that's the that's the thing is like I think a lot, a lot of people a lot of patients want to have some the concrete way of like classifying what a disease they have so because if it's autoimmune it's like some auto antibodies then you would well it's except some b cells mm -hmm. proliferations yeah you would uh, you would you would try to pick up some antibodies i don't know it's, look, anyways, it's sad look, for these people yeah, yeah yeah look yeah so like i just wanted to mention it um 
and like let if anyone listening has long COVID, yeah, let us know how how yeah, is it going for it? how's it going for you? What are you getting treated for? We'd love to hear. Um, yeah. yeah, get in touch on Twitter, email. Yeah, yeah Twitter skeptically inclined at skeptically i and Instagram skeptically inclined, or you can email us skeptically inclined at gmail dot com. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, briefly before you, I don't want to wait too much longer going into your main story but i think everyone has heard about this monkeypox uh yes. spread in the world um i maybe just to quite dampen people's panic uh it's I, not something that should become epidemic it's generally uh i think the main thing well you had mentioned this previously as i said uh generally it used to come from endemic areas in africa you'd have to have been there uh and then to have got the the disease to get monkeypox um but the thing is now it's like it's been spread in these countries that never had monkeypox before and they're like how mm. does it happen um so i think since 7th of may 190 cases have been confirmed in the uk and i think uh yeah so the cases have surpassed 1200 globally so it's kind of it's it's still going up like <laughs> i suppose so it's it is significant um, yeah, so, but in the UK, it was like the 7th of May, they had said 190 cases. It's said that the risk to the UK population is remains low, but that people should be alert to any new rashes or lesions, mm. which would appear like spots, ulcers, or blisters on any part of the body. Um, and yet the highest transmission risk is through direct contact with a confirmed case. So it, it's through the skin or maybe through fomites, like surfaces that you touch um because it's not clear again how how when you're transmissible if you do have the virus how long you can transmit for um but it's not it's you, not an airborne it's not airborne no, no so no. that's just why, to put it just to put it yeah, out there. exactly so um and they said like they now have vaccines um but it's not i get specifically for monkeypox it's a it's a vaccine for what was it um what was the vaccine? I think I've seen this. Human pox, cow pox, oh, it's, smallpox. It, smallpox, yeah. It was a, sorry, yeah. It's a smallpox vaccine because smallpox was eradicated. But now um, it's very similar. So the two viruses that they, it, 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 it will help mm. you prevent getting... Um, so because we eliminated smallpox and there was decrease in the vaccination rate that Mm. opened up the window of opportunity for a monkeypox yeah to get a chance and start infecting people because there's some sort of crosstalk between smallpox Mm. and the monkeypox yeah very smart i know yeah and it's just crazy if if it's true what it is skin to skin like um it's crazy that this still managed to increase so so massively um mm. in the population and um i think it just shows that it is quite infectious potentially when you do touch that surface um for now it seems to spread mostly in men who have sex with men um so yeah it just seems to be in that community um, so that just to be aware uh, and generally everyone heals your your recover okay it's just a few minority that do go on that develop more severe symptoms and there is treatment out there but it's not widely given to people because it's not necessary okay. um so you will recover you you might just have to like wait it out till you do you do have your scabs the blister formations yeah which are not did you nice. have a smallpox 
No, I don't. I don't know. I think it's in. I don't even know if they do a vaccine for smallpox anymore because it was eradicated. Yeah. Yeah. What's the um, What's the milder version of it? Of which? Of the pox. Am I thinking about something else? You're calling it cowpox. Cowpox is that one that they. But that, what's the What's the no? When you're a child, you're supposed to have it. Um, the 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 vaccine thing, the MMO. No, or the disease. It? Like when you're a child, you're supposed to have chickenpox. Oh, that's the one. Sorry. Yeah, that's varicella. Yeah, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the one I was thinking about. Okay. That's kind of similar, but that's like where you do get rashes and scabs. Yeah. But like that, you recover from that if you're a child. There's no. Yeah, you want to get it as a child. Yeah. Right? You don't want you don't want to have it later in life. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. You okay. Scar. But the um, monkeypox is nothing to be to be ringing alarms no, for just yeah, to be just, aware yeah, just, it's there. But like, yeah, it, it is increasing. Hopefully they can figure out how it's spreading so much. They can cut off how it's spreading. Yeah. And I think that they're at the moment, they're just going to vaccinate anyone who's even been potentially in, in contact with anyone with a confirmed case just to stop it. Because like, if you can stop people getting cases, you can stop it spreading. So... Hopefully the strategy works. Hopefully we can peak soon. A few um, more scenarios like that and we're going to become absolutely desensitized uh, to I any know, new yeah. viruses coming out. Like, you know, it's just like, oh, this one? Okay. Yeah, no. Let's let's People just power just through it. Forget about viruses for the next... <laughs> oh my God, who would have thought that the last, uh, what, three years <laughs> yeah. going to be so virus heavy? I know, and we all became vac- virus experts. Yeah, that's the first word you learn how to spell now when you're born. <laughs> yeah, like you have to, first class and when you're primary school is viruses. <laughs> yeah, you start in flu, then you go to coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> then leave English and maths. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, okay, yeah, so that was just the news headlines. Um, so, hope. Little that's bit to keep us on us, to still keep us on our toes. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, no, much needed. Because yeah. I have completely disregarded all safety measures uh, put in place out on Wednesday night, out on Friday night, yeah. dancing, sweating, touching, but your boy's still healthy. So, that's the, that's the best news. Yeah. Okay. Uh, go on to you, Tom, about nutrition. Nutrition um, science. Very exactly. important in our life because um, more, uh, I'd say just based on my own example, I uh, I'd like to think that I'm aware of what I put into my body, but more than often it's just shuffling things down until yeah. I feel uh, full, safe, and protected. I know, and it's just like every um, fitness guru or is like a nutritionalist now. Like they they all, and I do worry about it because I do think these people who haven't a clue about food science or anything mm. about metabolism or anything are giving talking to people on their social media is like this is good for you this is bad for you and they haven't a clue and so i do think yeah there definitely needs to be more uh understood about what true yeah. nutrition just uh, science. to put the label on it what is nutrition science because yeah we throw this word like these experts out there but without putting any definition on it and it's always nice to work within the frame of a definition it's a study of food nutrients and other food substances the intake and biochemical processes of food substances their relationship to health disease and the application of the information to policy and programs so it's a very broad uh, definition within nutrition science not only like the strictly 
scientific slash medical things, but also applies to, you know, the, the, the uh, policies and guidelines is how to kind of live your life. So as I was looking into it and uh, this nutrition science and see how nutrition was perceived throughout the ages, I, I noticed that even the ancient ones, you know, have you heard <laughs> about the lad called Hippocrates? Uh, was he a philosopher? He was the he was they one of the first. Uh, yeah, they were <laughs> philosophers back in the day. He was one of the first uh, medics, like the Hippocratic oath. Oh, okay, yeah, that's most so, probably where I heard him. Yeah, oh. so he famously said, "Our food should be our our medicine, and our medicine should be our food." And now so we're back in the day, full circle, isn't it? Full circle, yes. So there is many more quotes uh, that can be used. But the main message is that people always have recognized that nutrition and food consumption is much more than just uh, to quench hunger. So I think we can agree that nutrition and nutrient science is influential and should play a big role in our life, in our lives. I also feel that we look at miraculous diets and supplements with the little hesitations, just like you said. Yeah, like it's there's so many out there. It's like which one? They, exactly. If they're all miracle diets, none of them are. And it, it, it feels like they're trying to sell us a snake oil and exactly, you just, yeah. just hope not to get caught in it. That could be because the field is oversaturated with self-proclaimed experts with intense media cover, which undoubtedly leads to confusion among people. Yeah. An example of it could be a simplified low-fat recommendations. Um, low-fat recommendations have caused confusion by omitting details about types of fat or which foods should be prompted or avoided. The yeah. result is a confused public that look to the latest fat or food guru for advice and disregard much of the uncontested sensible advice on offer. It took collection of scientists from the Netherlands and this collective included nutritionists, <laughs> medical doctors, philosophers and sociologists of science. And they have diagnosed that nutrition science is meeting inherited boundaries. And that was what, that's one of the reasons why people feel that nutrition science is so unreliable. Yeah. So these inherited... What, what do uh, you do about it? Like? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so this hampers the conceptual and methodological, method, methodological progress and the translation of novel insights into so societal benefit and trust. So even if these, if these researchers and medical doctors come into some agreement and they have some concrete information because there is already so much so much distrust in the field people just are not willing uh, to take them up on it oh, yeah. so basically it, there is a problem facing uh, capabilities and credibility of nutritional yeah, science it's like how do you turn it around really yeah and it's like as you said like so many like any celebrity who like has a personal trainer and personal dietitian can write a book about this yeah. is what the diet you need to take for like to lose weight and i'm like what and they don't even have to be that good at writing right they can get these yeah. ghost writers and, exactly. <laughs> just, just, and you just their, put your name on it yeah and then just like a few pictures in the kitchen that's it so you might ask me what are you getting at tom we all know the field is uh, is <clears throat> is rarely perceived as unreliable so today I want to look at the pitfalls of nutrition science in, 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 in accuracies and see if there is a room for improvement. 
So we start uh, with the quality of the research in the field. That was the one of the first thing that I wanted to look at. What sort of research is being done within the nutrition science and the quality of it. And the main drivers be behind academic research should be, in my opinion, passion, curiosity, uh, determina and determination. But actually the main driver behind academic research is money. Money, yeah. Money and the funding. And uh, as my master's thesis supervisor once said to me, show me the money. <laughs> that was his first <laughs> Where thing. Where did he that, get that? He, <laughs> he was the first thing he told to me when I asked to do a research in his lab. <laughs> but anyway, Evan, did you know that there is 70% of what we eat is controlled by 10 companies with Nestle, yeah, like yeah. 10 Nestle, Nestle being the number one? Yeah. And then the rest of it is just like some meat producing factories throughout America. There is a Coca-Cola and there is 10 of them and they all produce 70% of what we eat. Yeah. Much of the funding of many academic nutrition, the nutrition department is from the food industry or its intermediaries, which help drive research agendas. The medical world learned the hard lesson on influence from the tobacco and pharmaceutical industries, but it has to yet to recognize fully the influence of food and drink companies, which have far greater impact on our health. This influence has indirectly ensured that it took 40 years for the first quality randomized controlled trial of the effect of junk food in humans. Yeah. Like, I, look at, I looked that paper up and it was crazy. It took them so long to get the hands on these, uh, you know, re refined food yeah. and see how do they compare versus other foods in terms yeah. of people gaining weight. And you can see clear trend, but yeah. because uh, it's so hard to find money uh, for this type of research, these uh, academies have to turn into industry to, so, to, to have money to literally to survive and carry out research. And once, and there is that pitfall of, taking money from industry that they will try to lobby yeah, your research yeah, and try yeah. to kind of skew it into certain direction they want to see it go, you know? Yeah, yeah. no, they, um, it's hard to, even if they do the research, if it doesn't come out the way they want it, then they're not going to publish it. So yeah, um, there's not the same integrity as you would have, as you would have in the strictly academic uh, setting. Mm -hmm. I remember and, actually it wasn't the reports that they, uh, I think that back in the sixties or seventies, they like l tried to label fat as the bad one, and they were saying like sugar was actually not bad, and they used to, and then they added loads of sugar into all our foods. Yeah, and of course, sugar is addictive, so <laughs> it was like basically getting people addicted, and then obesity rates just have been all increasing since then. Like so, yeah, like they have overemphasized this. Uh, the scarecrow which was labeled fat i'm not yeah. saying that like consuming like fatty products is healthy for you but like you know they they overblown yeah the, uh, the risk of it and they absolutely minimize uh, the damage the sugar sugar yeah. can done to to you in terms of like uh, weight gain and stuff so and it doesn't help that sometimes the highest grants grant is the way you you get money into your research it doesn't help that the highest grants sometimes are awarded for the hot topic in science, you know, like coronavirus, yeah. cancer is always hot, uh, some long, uh, long diseases. These are like- Well, diseases that you can design drugs yeah. to make money. But like nutrition science and uh, and nutrition in general, like it just doesn't seem that 
the heart of a topic for for which you would want to spend millions millions of dollars or millions of euro although it is important it might not be perceived as hot but hopefully that that will change mm, yeah well like it's yeah just why would they bother change their foods if they or do research into their foods if they don't <laughs> eat uh so um speak about like where uh, does the data and evidence come from in terms of nutrition science it's usually uh, observational studies that have started decades ago and you just trying to, and you just looking back these observational studies are complemented with small short-term human trials and sometimes animal experiments these large observational studies tend to maximal tend to maximize generalizability but are subjected to inherited biases in contrast short-term short-term studies are often re reductionist human trials and they tend to maximize rigor but lack of general generalizability i just really given myself a hard word today. yeah um, every every one of us have different requirements for fats, carbon, proteins, vitamins, and such. Large dietary guidelines are derived from results of large cohort and suitable for the and are suitable for the average human. Large scale trials have shown no difference in mean results between high and low fat healthy diets, but large inter individual yeah. differences regardless of allocated diet. Individual advice based purely on the average responses is of little use as most individuals do not resemble the average. And I think that's one, one of the problems within the field, within that field is we do rely on the large cohorts of studies and yeah. that has been done forever in every kind of science because you look for patterns. But in the same time, the, the way our body uses the food and turns it into nutrition is so variable and it differs so much from me to you. It's about with Carol LaRue, how you might not feel full after yeah. you eat food. So that's also again going to affect yeah. your nutrition. And you know, the, 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 the sort of things that you eat as well, you know, the, the divide, the social, so, social class divide, you know, like one group of people would eat cheaper uh, food, which is not necessarily as more good processed. for them, more processed food. And sometimes even though, let's say the, the calorie intake would be like, let's say the same between two different foods, just because one group used this processed food, overall, they're gonna be worse off compared yeah. to the people who would eat a better diet. And personalized nutrition based on genetic tests was thought inevitable, but with few exceptions. And that is relation to uh, caffeine and, you know, alcohol and lactose intolerance. The genetics did tell us which, which people, what people can drink milk and what people cannot drink yeah, milk. Like, That's yeah. a ne needle in a haystack but, in yeah, terms of like nutrition how, science. How, how is knowing what, what your gen genetics is going to help? How would that tell you anything? Like, yeah. That's just like giving you the very basics of what how anything works <laughs> it's literally like a blueprint of the building without anything yeah uh, anything like, in it. like you no. have no context to know no, what it means no. <laughs> and the re uh, speaking about genetics like the recent studies in twins have shown that genes have only a minor role in metabolic postprandial uh, which means during or relating to the period after dinner or lunch so minor role in the metabolic postprandial 
responses to fats and carbohydrates. So even twins have differences. Yeah. So and they're supposed to be a very close identical copies. Predatory companies take advantage of the idea that they can accurately predict the health, the healthiest diet for an individual based on the genomic makeup. For example, companies like Habit are very proud of their system-based approach, which means that they incorporate more than just DNA to reach personalized nutrition plan. However, their methods have never been tested in a clinical trial. Habit is not regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, so it didn't have to go through preliminary studies to prove their products to prove their products, and when asked to release the algorithm they used to analyze their data, they simply didn't do it. Who whose habits? What's that? So habit is this company and kinda works like uh, 23andMe kind of thing. You oh, know, they okay. ask you they ask you for a blood sample. Right. Uh, I don't know if you have to be starving or you have to be after eating. I didn't look that close, but they ask you for a sample, and I think somewhere between two to four hundred dollars, you have to pay two between two and four hundred dollars. You get a kit, you take a blood sample, you send it to them, then they use their DNA magic and the algorithm. And they say that they not only use the genetic makeup, but also different metabolites found in the blood sample to kind of come up with the most fine-tuned, healthiest diet, diet for you. Oh my God. But, you know, so again, it's not regulated, but FDA. It, there's, and there's no proof. There's nothing. There's no there's evidence. No proof. All the, the only evidence that you can get from them is this, uh, you know, anecdotal evidence yeah, yeah, when yeah. people can leave the reviews uh, underneath the product and say yeah. like, oh, wow, it, it works great. I've been talking a little bit more about the DNA and personalized nutrition. So personalized nutrition is not just the DNA or studying blood markers or doing some extensive uh, omi omi omic studies. So proteomics. Metabolomics. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> lipidomics and, uh, <laughs> and stuff like that. To, uh, to a larger and larger degree, microbiome is recognized as an important player. Their trillions of microbes contain hundredfold more genes than humans and behave like a virtual organ, producing thousands of chemicals, including key metabolites and essential vitamins. Our microbiomes are highly variable. Even identical twins share only about one third of the microbial families. They influence how food is processed and how nutrients and energy are extracted. Our different glycemic responses to carbohydrates are under microbial influence, but lipemic responses may be even more closely linked. Assessment of a gut microbiome is cheap enough to become a routine requirement in clinical studies and all food safety experiments. Manipulating the microbiome through diet is one of the major challenges of the next decade and is more complex than it seems. Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> it's a lot. But like, it's just like, it, yeah, it's just, it's such a, a really difficult thing to study because everyone is so different that like w research from one thing might complete, give a completely different results in mm -hmm. another person. And it's just like, how do you accurately get evidence that something works in enough people with nutrition and, uh, and then that's like just looking at one molecule. Never mind looking at the microbiome. Just yeah. looking at um, <laughs> like how it affects cells and bio biomolecules and molecules and all this kind of stuff. Like it's just. So you you mentioned two things uh, here. 
um, that I have came across when I was reading some papers and reviews. One of thing, one of the things you mentioned is the um, that the experts within the field they have they might have interpreted one set of results different ways. So there is this discussion within the field among the experts what is what and what is the correct interpretation interpretation of the yeah. resu results, and that is coming from these poor reproducibility efforts within the field, because as you said, as we have pointed out, every person is different and they might respond different uh, to different forms of diets and, and nutrition. And also this desire to observe a very quick short-term effect of a, of, a, of a nutrient. You want to have this short-term effect picked up. But the scientists are also saying that maybe with, within, with the nutrition science, we have to pay more attention into this long-term effect rather than uh, mm. trying to trying and compare short-term effects between isolated group of people. You should be looking at larger populations, kind of not only uh, retrospective, but prospective studies when the group of people exposed to, let's say, certain types of diets on the, on the long term and see uh, from the bigger picture what works for them mm. and, and how, how it... But this is, this is easier said than done because oh, try yeah. to control large population of people for a long time, giving them a specific diet and then ask them just to stick to that diet, not to have a, a sneaky, oh, sneaky yeah. cheat, cheat meal somewhere yeah. in the day, you know? And it's just like, if you could see an effect, is this a true effect? Is there something in a certain, like having to like analyze so mm -hmm. many different factors that could be at play, like lifestyle. Yeah. It's a really difficult thing to study. The main problems within the nutrition science is there's too many experts, pseudo experts. There is not enough money within the field to, uh, to support independent lobby free research. And, uh, and another thing is just the general distrust in, in science. So yeah, I, I just, what, what is next? Is there anything that can be done to help <laughs> this particular field? So what is important is to try and perform transition from single nutrient studies to more complex, large diet cohorts. Large cohort studies and randomized clinical trials provided more consistent evidence for diet pattern, such as low fat diet or Mediterranean or similar food-based patterns. Incorporation of the social demographic awareness in nutrition science. For lower income nations and populations, rigorous investigation is required to understand the optimal dietary patterns to jointly tackle maternal health, child development, infection risk, and non-communicable diseases. And new priorities for research are emerging in nutrition science. These include optimal dietary composition to reduce weight gain and obesity, interactions between probiotics and prebiotics and probiotics, fermented foods and good microbiota, effects of specific fatty acid, flavonoids and other bioactive bioactives, personalized nutrition, especially for non-genetic -genet lifestyle, sociocultural and microbiome factors, and powerful influences of place and social status on nutritional and disease disparity. So it kind of takes everyone to make sense out of nutrition science. That's how I understand it. What's your main takeaway that like be just to be aware, uh, be skeptical of what yeah. you read about these 
um diet diets uh foods that you should eat see where the research is coming from if you if you're one of those people that like to for example go on the open access and read something about you know trend in diets and how different diets work or or this on this and that particular nutrient see where is that research coming from see who has funded it uh, whether there is any conflict on, on of interest in that particular paper and what else yeah just so just if you if you sir your advice for people is if you're skeptical do your research look at <laughs> do your own research i think my my i'm not gonna say do your own research because too many people is doing their own research yeah. go to the nutritionist if you're really serious about yeah. your nutrition and what you're putting into your body and you're feeling that for some reason you're malnourished or you want to just change something with your food i think the best best case scenario is to is to go to the person who's trained to give you the proper advice and that's how you can avoid all of these pitfalls of the nutrition science field yeah. i think and what do you think should be can be done to improve like this better research and like that that it's easier for people to find out about what's true what's false because i feel like if there was like an organization like like the fda mm. or something that went like i don't know some food group that could be like the one that sets the standard then they can come out and say we think this is a this study was a, like this food group there is proven a benefit and then people could be like okay they said it because at the moment i don't think there's any like one standard there that'd be like they say it then it looks like it it's true like yeah they, we should they they have they, there's confidence about them because yeah I just feel like there's no one like common or like uh, one organization that does that it's just too fragmented having some sort of yeah like a organization in place that could guide and help yeah yeah be... it, I think it's just so it's just overwhelming and it's not transparent and I think that's what it's hard for people and I think they just completely switch off about uh about nutrition and and all yeah. that kind of stuff because it's like they've heard everything it's like there's there's no way of knowing so that's why i um that's one thing i would recommend i, I don't know do you have any other things that can change that should change or? from what i have read uh, the mediterranean diet seems to be genuinely working okay it's not it's not it's not like when you are obese and you start eating mediterranean diet you're gonna lose weight overnight but again if you stick with the diet, it has like benefits to you. You just, you just healthier based that on that proven. diet. And yeah, it's based on some papers that I have looked up. What has been shown there, it's because, especially with the Mediterranean diet, because the food is so, not, not raw, but so unprocessed, you know, in the way that it's being consumed, it's just very healthy compared yeah. to every other <laughs> diet that is out there what's that again like fish fish greens olive oil olives um uh, not processed food really just not processed food. i think it's more the way they prepare it rather than what it is mm. of, of course it also matters what it is but it's most likely how how it's being prepared that it the food retains all of the nutrients and they're not being lost during the processes and they're not just being filled up with you know empty carbs just to kind of uh just to fill the volume yeah 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 it's uh, interesting you ha you just have to be aware and perhaps to be good at eating you have to be responsible like personal responsibility comes into right you can't yeah. just 
put everything into your mouth and my, maybe it is important to check the back label of different food products uh, in the store every now and then yeah 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 so to summarize be skeptical fund better research get better evidence-based um, make nutrition hot <laughs> yeah yeah make it sexy <laughs> yeah make it sexy so uh, the money will can uh, so the money will arrive <laughs> yeah um yeah so is there anything else you want to add or uh no that that would be me uh on this part yeah over and out grand um yeah so thanks for that time that was interesting i think everyone can re- somehow relate to medicine uh, nutritional science and nutritional mm. and uh yeah i just it's definitely something that is overlooked and uh yeah we need to hopefully do more uh, to look to understand it better anyways yeah um definitely. yeah so that was today's episode um i hope you enjoyed it today we talked about the um i did about long covid and uh monkey pox uh, and tom did it give us a nice overview of nutritional science what's going on uh, the pitfalls the pitfalls. why it doesn't work <laughs> why it doesn't work i hope you enjoyed today's episode um and yeah we uh we will catch you on the next one we're um see you in two weeks two weeks yeah and uh we're we have a few more weeks and then we'll be going to uh come into a season two finale so yes stay tuned for that and um hope you're gonna hope you're gonna enjoy this episode episode number 42 uh don't be afraid to stay in touch leave us a message on instagram twitter or gmail we you can find us under the skeptically inclined on instagram skeptically i on twitter and skeptically inclined at gmail.com so be a friend leave a message and yeah we're gonna hear you on the next one so stay skeptical and bye Uh, see you then bye